All right, I'm um, going to bring a message this morning that I'm calling an unimaginable world, an unimaginable world. And I want to start with uh, what I think is a great thought for the tweener season, which is this weird week between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, this is from a Yale historian by the name of Yaroslav Polikin. Here's what he said. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for 20 centuries. If it were possible, he said, with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? That's what we're going to look at today. We tend to all be kind of self-absorbed and we look at Jesus as his part in our life or in our little church here. We don't stand back and recognize the scope, the sheer awe-inspiring enormity of his impact upon the world. Reminded me of something that I heard of a while back. Um, Walt Disney's daughter was writing a long time ago a biography about her dad a long time ago. She talks about when she was a little girl, it didn't really even dawn on her who her dad was until she was like six or seven years old. And so she was at school one day and there were kids at school saying, you know, Mickey Mouse, Magic Kingdom, Disney World, all that stuff, that's like your dad. And she goes home and says to her dad then, and she goes, dad, how come you never told me you're Walt Disney? <laughs> it made me think about this. For a few minutes, we're gonna stand back and, and look at who this Jesus is. We're just forget about yourself for a few minutes. This message is not gonna be about your life or about my life. We're gonna see how God has shaped history through Jesus in awesome ways. I wanna start out by naming the obvious. It would be hard to choose a, a less likely candidate to change the world than Jesus. He was not a political figure. He had no connections with Herod or the Sanhedrin or with Rome. He led no military action. He never wrote a book. He never traveled. His followers were largely uneducated and ridiculously unimportant people. The New Testament itself records them as being unschooled, ordinary men, it calls them. But it also notes about them, they had been with Jesus. 2,000 years later, it's virtually impossible to imagine our world apart from his imprint upon it. But we're going to try. We're going to try. Imagine a world with no church, no Notre Dame, no St. Paul's, no storefront church in Pine Hills, no house churches in China, no life church. Then all the people, no Peter, no Paul, no Timothy, no St. Francis of Assisi, no Mother Teresa, no Martin Luther, no Martin Luther King, no Dietrich Bonhoeffer, no Joan of Arc, no John Milton, John Wesley, John Calvin, or John the Baptist. None. In the ancient world, there were families, there were ethnic groups, there were political gatherings, there were tribal religions and philosophical schools. The church was really none of those things. Matter of fact, in quite an opposite sort of thought, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes about the church, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, he says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And as a matter of historical fact, not only had there never been a community like that before, there simply had never been a thought of a community like that. 
Jesus changed how we think about time itself. You know why New Year's Day falls when it does on the calendar? Because of Jesus. In ancient Israel, they would start counting on the day that a child was born. Then on the eighth day, the child would be brought to the temple and given its name. So December 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, 31 January 1st marks the beginning of the new year because that's the day that the name Jesus came into the world. Every January 1 marks this whether you believe in him or not. Luke tells us about when Jesus was born, and we read this verse of scripture many times over this Christmas series. He writes in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, he says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Parenthetically, this took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. That's kind of a clumsy way to date something, isn't it? Why doesn't just Jesus, God in the Bible tell us just the year in which Jesus was born? Like, what year was it? Well, the system of Luke's day was that events be dated by the reign of the emperor, year one of the reign of Augustus, and so on. And over time, the power of every Caesar faded as power alone always does, while the vision of this man Jesus, this crucified unknown carpenter, kept on growing. Now, 600 years after Jesus, a Scythian monk living in Rome proposed a new system for reckoning history. His name was Dionysus Exegius. Beautiful name. In Latin, that means little Dennis. It's more impressive in Latin, isn't it? <laughs> His suggestion was that the calendar be based not on, the, not on the pagan myth of the founding of Rome, but on the incarnation of this carpenter Jesus who never held office and never wrote a book. And the fact remains that 2,000 years after the birth of this carpenter, <clears throat> Anytime anyone, anywhere, opens up a calendar or boots up a computer or fires up their phone, they are reminded that Jesus Christ has become the hinge of human history. You hear this phrase, in the year of our Lord. Nero Caesar died in the year of our Lord, 68 AD. Napoleon died in the year of our Lord, 1821. Joseph Stalin, the dictator, died in the year of our Lord, 1953. If Jesus was not the king of kings, how strange it is then that every ruler who ever lives, whoever reigns, every nation that rises and falls must now be dated in reference to the life of Jesus. All right, take him as a, as a man. Put aside the God stuff for a moment. How do you explain what has happened to our world? Jesus rearranged how we, we look at time. Without Jesus, there would not be Sunday as we know it. The Sabbath came into being through the ancient people of Israel, the only ancient culture to deliberately give up a day of a potential economic gain in order to put God first and as a statement of their trust in God. By the end of the first century, Christians had begun to meet on another day, no longer the seventh day. And this is written about by a Roman historian by the name of Pliny the Younger. Anybody want to guess what his dad's name was? Uh, Pliny the Younger says they met on the first day, not the seventh day. Why is that? Because it was Resurrection Day. It was Resurrection Day. Sunday eventually became the world's day off. And the whole idea of what we, we know as holidays, days that we look forward to, began as holy days. Holy days so we would remember the life and the impact of this man, Jesus. Even how we got mechanical clocks. For centuries, followers of Jesus that were living in monastic communities 
they oriented their days around the practice of prayer. They would call it the prayers of the hours. In the 13th century, some Benedictine monks created mechanical clocks so they could know when they're supposed to come together to pray. And that, by the way, is why for centuries time was told by bells in church steeples, so people would know what time it was. Okay, beyond all that, Jesus shaped how we express compassion to one another. I mean, all human beings have the capacity for compassion, but the Jesus movement shaped this anew. In the ancient world, it was generally the strong, the powerful, the beautiful, and the noble that were admired. And there would be times when some wealthy people would give some money for public works, for a park, for a building, for a statue, things like that. But really, it was more about showing how great this person's name was, more than it was than showing compassion or generosity. It, back in those days, the, the weak and the, the marginal were generally not valued at all. Matter of fact, in the first century, a Roman philosopher by the name of Seneca wrote this. He said, we drown children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. That was just the world that they lived in. Except, except, in this strange little community where these people remembered that they followed somebody who said, let the little children come to me. That's what Jesus said. They actually began to take in abandoned children um, that were left behind, left for dead, whatever. There had never been any movement like this before. We read about a guy named Beningus of Dijon, who was a follower of Jesus, says that he nursed and supported and protected a number of deformed and crippled children that had been saved from death after failed abortions and exposures. And he was actually martyred for his actions. You weren't supposed to help helpless people back then. Widows by law were actually fined by Rome for surviving their husbands. It was seen as kind of bad form for a woman to do that, kind of a drag on the economy. Then there was this community of people who remembered that they followed someone who told his friend John when he was dying on a cross, he said, take care of my mom. She's now your mom. That was his approach. So the church, followers of Jesus, started taking in widows they were not even related to. And a sociologist named Rodney Stark said, one of the main reasons for the expansion of the church came because of two major epidemics that destroyed populations. See, while people would just throw the bodies of sick people out into the streets, folks in this strange community called the church would bring in sick people that they did not know and to whom they were not related, and they would care for them at risk of their own health. Why? Because this Jesus that they followed cared for the lepers and the blind and the deaf and the sick. And so they did as well. And then as this movement grew into the fourth century, what was essentially the first hospital for the prolonged care of the sick was developed by a Jesus follower named St. Benedict. By the sixth century, monasteries commonly had makeshift hospitals attached to them. And over time, this compassion began to transform a culture in which that idea did not previously exist. This was a compassionate movement. Then later, at the Geneva Convention, an organization was born to alleviate human suffering, and they chose as their symbol a flag with a large cross on it, and it is called the Red Cross. Beyond all that, the Jesus movement shaped education as we know it. 
want you to look at a couple verses of scripture, one from the Old Testament, <clears throat> and, look, and then we'll look at the difference of Jesus' version of it. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's a central tenet of, of Judaism and should be wonderful verse of scripture. This is Jesus' version of it a little bit later. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. What does it mean to love God with all of your mind? Why did Jesus make a point of this? Stay with me. One day Rome collapsed, and the barbarians and the Huns and the Goths and the Visigoths totally destroyed Roman civilization. There were no books back then. The writings that were treasured were written on little scrolls, and they, they decayed easily and pretty quickly. So if everything was destroyed, why is it then that we still have the writings of so many of these great classical Jewish, Roman, Greek, and other thinkers? There is a variety of reasons, but one really, really big one is this. About the fourth century, some of Jesus' followers entered into monastic communities, and for centuries, for centuries, these were the only institutions in Europe for the preservation and transmitting of knowledge. Thomas Cahill wrote a very popular book called How the Irish Saved Civilization, and it shows that for centuries, Irish monks copied down ancient manuscripts, not just Bible texts, but all ancient manuscripts. Matter of fact, the single greatest preserver of pagan classical documents were followers of Jesus. You think, well, why would they do that? Because the believers were convinced that all truth is God's truth. We love it all. We love it all. <clears throat> so they began to copy down, preserve knowledge, pass it on, pass it on, pass it on. They would, they would find ways to love God with all of their mind. Now, the church began to build schools. They built universities. First one was in Paris around the 12th century. Then in the 13th, 13th century, Oxford and Cambridge. Then universities in, in Rome and Naples and Vienna and Heidelberg. These were all, all begun by followers of Jesus so that people could get better at loving God with all their minds. Now, it was interesting to me because they came to be called universities because they reflected the idea that in the beginning, God created the universe and he created all things. It's not just a random accident and it can be studied to the glory of God. Students would ponder statements like what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter one when he said, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Writer Dinesh D'Souza wrote this. He said, science as an organized, sustained enterprise arose only once in human history, in Europe in the civilization then known as Christendom. So I'll tell you how fundamental this man Jesus was to the rise of education in our own country. Take a look at this statement. See if you can guess what college handbook it comes from. Here's what it says. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And you guess what college that comes from? Harvard. Harvard University. What was basically from their student handbook in 1646. Has Harvard changed a little? 
92% of the first 138 colleges and universities founded in the United States began for followers of this uneducated, itinerant, never wrote a book carpenter. And over centuries, Christian missionaries went and they found languages that had not been committed to writing yet. So in acts of unthinkable, magnificent heroism, they devoted their lives to helping those people develop alphabets and dictionaries in their own languages. The first important proper name written in many languages was the name Jesus. The Gospels have now been translated into over 2,200 languages. That is more than 10 times the next uh, book that has been translated into that many languages, not even one-tenth as many. Without Jesus, there's no Martin Luther, whose German Bible became the primary shaper of the German language. Without Jesus, there's no King James Bible, which became the primary shaper of the English language. Beyond all that, beyond all that, the Jesus movement revolutionized art. Without Jesus, there's no Sistine Chapel, no Da Vinci's Last Supper, no Pieta. Without Jesus, there's no Dante, whose divine comedy was the primary shaper of modern Italian. Without Jesus, there's no Johann Bach, who signed all of his works to the glory of God, to the glory of God. So imagine a world with no Hallelujah Chorus, no Handel's Messiah, no Mozart's Requiem, no Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. I love that song, I really do. <laughs> you know, modern musical notation was invented in the Middle Ages by monks who wanted to be able to spread music to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. You can go on forever like this. You can go on forever. There simply has been no transcendent vision of reality that has captured the artist's imagination like this man Jesus. Beyond all that, beyond that, the Jesus movement changed political theory. Jesus said once, you know these words, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. That was revolutionary in that day. He also said in John chapter 18, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, forget about religion. That's one of the most influential statements in political history. Because up until this point, it was assumed that any nation or power or the state had the power to compel worship because tribal gods were part of what would hold any state or nation or power together. Edward Gibbon writer, uh, writes this in The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He said, the gods which prevail in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true, by the philosophers as equally false, and by the politicians as equally useful. <laughs> Politicians haven't changed much over the years. He's saying that Jesus' followers are not to withdraw from their countries. They're not to overthrow their countries, but they're not gonna give any country their ultimate allegiance because their ultimate allegiance lays somewhere place else. So the Romans would say, the gods in Rome, dot, 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 but not, not the followers of Jesus. It's just God, just God. So from Augustine to Martin Luther, to John Locke, there becomes this notion being developed of limited government, that even kings will one day answer to a higher power, and that the state should not run religion, but then religion shouldn't run the state either. 
That's part of why we as a church, our focus is and will always be on Jesus and not politics. Because we still have to work out what it means to follow a king whose kingdom is not of this world. Beyond all that, Jesus elevated humanity. He changed how we think about human rights and human worth. Our own Declaration of Independence, the founding document for this nation, says these words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and have been endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. So where did this idea come from? Because it's not self-evident to everyone. It certainly wasn't to the Goths or the Huns or the Nazis. It came from the idea that all human beings have been made in the image of God and are loved by him. And this idea reached an unprecedented height in the expression from the Apostle Paul in the, in the book of Galatians, where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor free, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Saying every human being has equal dignity and worth. This the power of Jesus' teaching has this subversive way of refusing to stay down, and it always seems to break through. And that's why the movements like the abolition of slavery were overwhelmingly led by followers of Jesus. He uniquely taught to love your enemies. And phrases like we've all read in the Gospels, turn the other cheek. Go with them two miles, not one. Love your enemy and bless those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The idea of loving your enemies is not a natural human idea. And Jesus did not just talk about this. No, on his cross, he said about those who were executing him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. He created a community of people who would actually love this way. We're told by an ancient writer about these early followers of Jesus that were Christian martyrs. Martyr, by the way, is a Bible word. It was a word for witness in the Bible. They died for their love of Jesus. First century historian Tacitus writes these words. He said, some were torn by dogs and perished. Some were nailed to crosses or doomed to the flame. These were our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this really happened. It really happened. Nero Caesar would take Christians and cover them with pitch and use them as human torches to light up the gladiator games. This went on and off for three centuries. And the response of the people of this movement against them was not to learn to hate. It was not to form an army. It was to love in the face of hate. And the reality of this love for enemies was so powerful that we read about a pagan military commander by the name of Morris who said he simply could not execute any more Christians. And he himself was executed for that decision. And he inspired a writer by the name of Tolstoy who wrote a book called Resurrection that was banned in Russia, but it inspired a British trained lawyer to start a Tolstoyan community in South Africa. Matter of fact, the last letter that Tolstoy ever wrote to a non-relative was to this lawyer extolling the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. And that lawyer's name was Mahatma Gandhi. Now, he eventually went back to India. He did not become a Christian. But there's no way to understand Gandhi's movement apart from the Sermon on the Mount. You can't do it. 
The most famous speech of the 20th century was given by a preacher by the name of Martin Luther King, the I have a dream speech. We've all heard this. I'll tell you something cool about that. Martin Luther King is speaking from a prepared text that day, and at one point he throws in a quote from the Old Testament prophet Amos, says, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls like the waters, will not be satisfied until righteousness flows like a mighty stream. And the response of the crowd starts building and building. And he starts in on this part that we all know and we're all familiar with, the I have a dream part. He says, one day all children of God will be judged no longer by the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. I have a dream that every valley will be raised up, every mountain will be brought down, the glory of God will be revealed. I have a dream, he says. Beautiful, beautiful words. It's not really his dream. It's Jesus' dream. 2,000 years earlier, Jesus says these words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. I mean, no secular speech can move the human heart like that. That's Jesus at work. So, who is Jesus. As we come to the close of the Christmas season, that's really the question, isn't it? Who is Jesus? Well, he's the hinge of history. He's the hope of the oppressed. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the greatest teacher who ever lived. He's the greatest mind that ever thought. He sparked the greatest movement that's ever spread. He alone mastered life. He alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. He alone grows more present with each passing year. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. That's the child of Christmas. That's the message of the angels to the shepherds, to every person here. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Goodwill to all men. And that includes you. His heart towards you is good. His plan for you is good. There is something that you can be that you will never be apart from Jesus. And please hear me say that today. Won't you bow your heads and we'll pray. Our good God, we thank you for the significance of Jesus. It's not another holiday on a schedule of a dozen holidays throughout the course of a year. Jesus is the hinge of history, changed everything. And Lord, when we think about it, we realize that you really have changed everything for each and every one of us. Those of us who know you and are walking with you, we know the, the revolution that you began in our life. And Lord, for those that may be looking in from the outside, I pray in Jesus' name that they would take a step forward towards you in faith. And say, Jesus, I want to receive you by faith and comprehend and experience you as the hinge of history, as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. So, Lord, I pray for every person that's wrestling with that decision right now, whether they're here or watching. Lord, I pray that you would give them the strength and the courage to step forward towards you. And they can see themselves in their own mind's eye, taking your hands, saying, Jesus, I want what you lived and died to give me. We pray this in faith, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.